Uh, you can turn in your copy of the scriptures to Leviticus chapter 16. And I'm going to read from us a portion of this chapter starting in verse 29. If you don't have a Bible, maybe there are Bibles on the table. There are. There are some Bibles on the table. If you need one, you are free to take one for the service and take one with you home as our gift to you. If you're there, listen as, as I read, starting in verse 29. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month on the tenth day of the month you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as the priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tents of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins." And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. Let me pray for us. Lord, as we come now to this very important passage of Scripture, we pray that you would grant us grace. That you would help us. Even as we just sung, your your grace is sufficient. In our weakness, we pray that your strength would shine forth. In our need, we pray that you would help us to see your all-sufficiency to meet that need. Help us again this morning to glory in the work of your Savior, Jesus Christ, who makes full atonement for our sins, that we might know peace and rest and joy, that we might have this as an anchor for our souls. Do this by your Spirit for the glory of your name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've arrived at the the mountaintop, the the pinnacle of the book of Leviticus, which is the the day of atonement. Uh, Martin Luther once said, there are only two days on my calendar, today and that final day when Christ returns. This morning, I want you to know that the only way that you can have real joy and peace and rest, no matter what you are facing today. And the only way that you can have real hope as you look forward to that final day when Christ returns is by understanding the day that's described here in this passage. The the day of atonement. Atonement is a central theme in the book of Leviticus. That word itself is used 15 times here just in this chapter. And every chapter up to this point, so chapters 1 to 15, has all been looking forward to and anticipating the Day of Atonement. And on the other side of chapter 16, chapters 17 through 27, are all going to look back and reflect on the Day of Atonement. 
In fact, this chapter is the literary pinnacle of the entire Torah. The first five books of the Bible. If you think of the first five books like a mountain, uh, Genesis and Deuteronomy on the, the sort of the base, and then Exodus and Numbers, it's all leading us up to Leviticus, and then at the center pinnacle point is this day, this day of atonement. And we stand here at this mountain peak, we can look out on, on all of the law. In fact, we can look out on the entire Bible and see the central animating theme of all the scriptures. There couldn't be a more important passage than this. I'm trying to use all the superlatives and all the language to communicate to you how important this day is, the day of atonement. It is the central storyline and theme of all the scriptures that God in Christ has done all that is necessary to make full atonement for sinners so that they can be restored to fellowship with him for the glory of his name. That's what the Bible is all about. Of course, you know, the great problem of all the scriptures is the problem that we have been rehearsing in Leviticus over and over again, the problem of how a holy God can dwell, excuse me, how a holy God can dwell with sinful people, how sinful people can draw near to a holy God. What I want you to see this morning, what I think God wants you to see in this passage this morning, is that more than anything you need in your life, more than food, more than water, more than friendship, more than vacation. What you need is atonement. It's the greatest need you have in your life for atonement. So what do I mean when I say you need atonement? Well, our passage answers that question for us. So let me summarize that for you in, in a statement, and then I want to spend the rest of our time sort of just unpacking that statement. So what I mean when I say you need atonement, that you need atonement, here it is. If you're, if you're a note-taking person, I'll say, I'll give you my statement, I'll read it to you twice. That you need atonement means that you need God to substitutionally slaughter all your sin and send it away so you can experience his Sabbath rest now and forever. One more time. That you need atonement means that you need God to substitutionally slaughter your sin and send it away so that you can experience his Sabbath rest now and forever. So let's just start with the first three words of that statement, which profoundly capture the position every single one of us is in this morning. You are in a position of need. You need God. Now look at how this chapter begins. <clears throat> if you have your Bible open there, you can look at verse 1. We read this, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. 
But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place. We are reminded that at the very first worship service that was held in the tabernacle, remember, remember way, back in, way back when in chapter 10, we had this worship service and two rogue priests dared to go into the holy of holies on their own terms and in their own way. But God warns Moses and warns us that we cannot come into his presence however we please. There is a way, but there is a way, uh, that way is a way that God must provide and a way we must humbly and, and thankfully embrace. You see, the, the first thing the Bible says about your need for atonement is that it's a need that you cannot fulfill. It's a need that you can't meet on your own. You are helpless to meet this need. Your greatest good, can I just remind you? Your greatest good is found in knowing God and having relationship with Him. And yet, the biggest thing standing in the way of that is you. You are your biggest problem. So it's not a surprise to us that this need is something that we cannot ultimately fix in and of ourselves. And by the way, this is what in part makes the gospel and makes atonement such an offensive message to, to people in the 21st century because essentially it says you are not enough. You, you don't have the resources you need, right? The, the sort of narrative of the 21st century is, you know, the, the, the way to the good life, the, the way you realize your potentials, you just sort of reach down into your heart and you, and you, 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 you pull yourself up by the way. You can, you can do it. You can be it, right? You can, you can realize your full potential. You just need to have the courage to look down into your own heart and, and be the best version of yourself. But this very sentiment is evidence of our rebellion against God's design for us. That we were made for fellowship with him. We were made to be dependent upon him. And it's this embedded posture of rebellion in our hearts, this embedded posture of self-reliance and self-rule that makes us our own worst enemies. So that we are our biggest problem and, and so we can never be the ones who actually fix our problem. We can never be the ones who actually meet our need. C consider for a moment how crazy, how absurd, how arrogant it would have been if after Nadab and Abihu, remember Nadab and Abihu, they go into the Holy of Holies and God roasts them like instantaneously. How crazy it would have been if Moses and Aaron looked at each other and then were like, no problem, we got this. Don't worry, God, we'll take care of it. We can fix this problem. Like literally, they just saw God consume Nadab and Abihu because of their arrogance, because of their pretentiousness and their, their thinking they could just go in as they pleased. And so it's equally as ridiculous for us to think that we have the resources to fix our problem. It's as silly as Adam and Eve in the garden who think they can cover over their sin with a couple of fig leaves. But here's the point. The point is that we need God. But at the risk of sounding 
too obvious, too on the nose. Brothers and sisters, do you know that you need God desperately? Your greatest need is, is for God to show up in your life, is for God to do what you cannot do for yourselves. We need God. You need God. But our passage has more to say about what in particular you need God to do for you, right? I said that that our, our need for atonement means that we need God to substitutionally slaughter your sin. And I want to pause for a moment there on that word, substitutionally. As, as uh, many of you know, I spent nine years uh, teaching in a private Catholic prep school. Uh, it was a really good experience for a number of ways, a hard experience. But my favorite thing about it was there's a theology department there. And so there's lots of teachers that are, well, not lots, a handful of teachers, I should say, that are willing to have, you know, meaningful theological discussion. And so there were lots of open doors for me to have these kinds of conversations. And regularly in those conversations, uh, we would talk about the gospel and we would talk about the atonement. And I would ask them questions like, what do you believe was, was happening at the cross? Like, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? And we get a variety of different answers, but generally they all amounted to something like this. Uh, Jesus died on the cross to show us that God loves us and to show us how to love each other. That is generally the, 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 what I got. Now, that's not untrue, right? That's not not true, but it does not get at the central reason for why Jesus is being crucified, does it? It presents Christ merely as a demonstration of God's love and as an example for us to follow. But foundational to the biblical understanding of atonement is this idea of substitution. This idea of substitution. Look at our passage. Look at verse 6. We read, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now, there were a number of ways that the, the Day of Atonement was similar to other, the other daily offerings. Remember the, the, the burnt offerings and the grain offerings and the sin offerings and the peace offerings? There was a number of ways in which the Day of Atonement was similar, but there were some really important ways in which the Day of Atonement was different and was unique. And for one, uh, you, you know that it's a day, right? It's the Day of Atonement, and it happens once per year. But another really unique feature is the presentation of these two goats. These two goats, are very, they're unique to the Day of Atonement. And the sacrificial rites performed on the Day of Atonement began with the, the priests preparing themselves and going through ritual washings and cleansing so that they could be equipped to, to make the sacrifices and, and for Aaron, the high priest, to ultimately go into the Holy of Holies. But on this day, after making atonement for his own sins, the high priest, and Aaron in this case, presented two spotless goats. And as we'll see in more detail in a, in a moment, one of them was designated to be sacrificed to the Lord. The other one was designated to be sent out into the wilderness. But the point is that the role of these two goats was obvious and unmistakable to the people that were gathered, to the assembly, to Israel. There, there was no mistaking what those two goats represented. These two goats were being presented in Israel's place. They were being presented as substitutes. 
And to miss that fact misses the central aspect of the Day of Atonement, that these two goats are being presented in the place of Israel. The rabbinic commentaries let us know that it was expected that these two goats would be as identical as possible. Right? It was, the, the idea is that there are two goats because the, there are these two aspects of atonement that needed to be handled. But these two goats were, were, were sort of symbolically acting as one. Right? As one goat sort of accomplishing both of these aspects of atonement, the purification of sins through judgment and also the removal of guilt. And the, the point is that if Israel was going to live another day, right? If you can put yourself back there, the day of atonement, the point is if Israel is going to live another day with Yahweh as their God, they were going to need a substitute to stand in their place because of their sin. And no Israelite would have been confused about that fact. That would not have been like, well, you know, if, you, if you're uh, up on your atonement theory, you'll know that there are a variety of different uh, uh, atonement theories. No Israelite would have been tossing around different atonement theories, wondering whether or not the goats were meant to be substitutes. It's, it's, it's embedded in the ritual. They are to, to be substitutes. And all of this, of course, pointed forward to the perfect substitute that we have in Christ, right? This central role that Christ plays as our mediator, as our substitute. Brothers and sisters, you you need to know that without question, we have in Christ a wonderful, a complete demonstration of God's love and a perfect example for us to follow. But you cannot know the good of these things. Listen to me. You cannot know the good of these things. You cannot know the good of God's demonstration of love. You cannot know the good of following Jesus' example unless you know Jesus Christ as your substitute. Unless by faith you acknowledge Christ as the one who takes your place before God on the cross. And he takes your place to do what? That's the next part of our statement. I said, you need God to substitutionally slaughter your sin. Look with me at verse 15. We read, then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel. And because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. The the, the focal point of the day of atonement was when the high priest ventured behind the curtain, behind the veil, into the Holy of Holies. It was the place where God's glory dwelled most intensely. And you, you may remember from past sermons that sewn into the curtain were images of the cherubim. And stationed on the mercy seat, the the lid that covered the ark, were two statues of cherubim. A reminder, it's a callback to Genesis 3, where God stations a cherubim with a flaming sword, barring entrance into his presence, right? They had been expelled. Adam and Eve had, had been expelled out of the garden, and God had stationed a cherubim with a flaming sword to keep them out. And so there was a a weighty sense of going back into a kind of garden that was put in the middle of Israel 
with cherubim on the curtain guarding the way and cherubim over the mercy seat guarding the, the way. And, and, and so now Aaron goes in. The high priest, but once a year, into the holy place where God dwells. And so, so when he went in, verse 12 through 13 tells us that he carried with him a censer, which was basically a metal pan. And there were coals in there, and he would put incense on the, on the, the, the coals, and there were, a smoke would rise up, and the smoke was meant to, to shield his view, to keep him from actually gazing directly into the glory of the Lord, lest he die. Now, at, at, at this point, we need to ask and answer a big question. The question is this, why did there need to be a day of atonement to begin with? Here's Aaron, he's, he's going into the Holy of Holies on this single day of the year. He's taking in the, the incense, he's bringing in the blood of the bull and the goat to sprinkle on the mercy seat. Why did there need to be a day of atonement, right? God had given instructions for burnt offerings and grain offerings and peace offerings and sin offerings. He had given the cleanliness, the cleanliness laws. If the people were diligent to keep the cleanliness laws and to, to bring their offerings, everything should be good, right? Well, sort of, but not really. And here's why. Uh, Nadab and Abihu were extreme examples, but they de- demonstrated that even in this system, sin and uncleanness could make its way into the tabernacle. But it wasn't only something as, as flagrant as attempting to enter the Holy of Holies in an unauthorized way that made the tabernacle unclean. Uh, those cleanliness laws covered every area of life. And so it was inevitable that there would be lapses, that there would be little ways in which uncleanness was not removed before people came in. Uh, they failed to clean before they touched an insect. Or maybe they, they brushed by a, uh, a, a, a wife or a daughter who was during their uh, you know, monthly flow. But not only that. Consider the fact that there would have been many sins committed by the people that were either forgotten or entirely omitted. Over the course of a year, sins that were committed but, but were forgotten or sins that were committed when they didn't even realize they had committed those sins. Look, if I asked you right now, like, all right, can you run off for me all the ways in which you sinned this week? There would certainly be sins that you sinned that you have forgotten about. But even more than that, there would be sins, ways in which you sinned when, that you didn't even realize you sinned. So Hebrews 9, 7 tells us the high priest went behind the veil once a year with blood, which he offered for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. And so the Day of Atonement had two main functions, right? The first was to cleanse the temple from all the ways it had little by little been contaminated by Israel's uncleanness. Right? You see the language in verse 16. If you have your Bibles open, look at verse 16. It says, thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgression. And so the Day of Atonement was like this yearly sense in which 
the, the, the tabernacle needed to be fumigated and restored to its initial state of pristine cleanness so God could continue to dwell among his people. people. But, but more than that, and this is where I want to linger for just a moment, the second function of the Day of Atonement was to remind people, it was to remind Israel that for God to be holy means that not one sin, not one sin, not one transgression, not the smallest offense against his righteous law can go unaccounted for. Every sin must receive its just penalty. Do you see those three words in the middle of verse 16? All their sin. This spotless goat was sacrificed and its blood was brought inside the veil and sprinkled on the mercy seat as a reminder that only full and complete atonement for sins would be sufficient to enable them to draw near to God. It was to show them that even the slightest stain of sin would result in complete destruction at the hands of a holy and righteous God. Right? You, you know when God reveals himself to Mo- Moses, he is the Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but, but who will by no means clear the guilty. He is a righteous and he is a holy God. Friends, there, there is only one way to stand before God and live. And it is to stand before him absolutely perfect. That is the divine standard. Not, not even the faintest scuff of sin on your soul will be passed over. If there is just one evil deed, one lie, one hateful word, just one angry outburst, just one impure thought, just one selfish motive, one worldly desire, desire then you stand under the just condemnation of God. We read earlier, and Jeremy quoted it in his prayer of confession, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. Right? No one can stand. You remember what James wrote, right? Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point becomes guilty of the whole law. But, Just as that first goat was a reminder that God would not permit even one sin to go unpunished, it was also a reminder that God had made provision for all of their sins to be forgiven. It was a pointer to the final and complete provision God has made in his son, Jesus Christ. You see, in order to be whole before God, in order to be justified before him, all of your sins must be accounted for. And that's precisely what Christ came to do. Listen to these words from from Colossians 2. We read this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You see, the forgiveness of all your sins has come because God nailed the record of your debt up on the cross where Christ was crucified. In Christ, God's just punishment for all your sins, listen, 
So I know you've heard this before. Remember, remember again. All your sins, past, present, future, were accounted for in the death of Christ. Not one was left unaccounted for. Not one impure motive. Not one sinful desire. Not one worldly inclination. All of them, down to the very last, were accounted for in the death of Christ. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I was crucified with Christ. All that Paul is, the old man, the sinful man, was crucified with Christ. And just as that spotless goat was slaughtered on behalf of Israel and its blood was splattered over the mercy seat to cleanse God's dwelling place, so in Christ has God slaughtered his own son and in so doing slaughtered your sin. He's made an end of it. Right? He has crucified the old man and put him to death. And the blood of Christ now cleanses you from all your sins and makes you new. I, I couldn't help but, you, you know, we sing, we sing this song every now and again. This verse from, it is well with my soul. You remember? My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part. Not in part, but the whole was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. Amen? He nailed it all to the cross. Every single bit of it, not one sin was left unaccounted for. But that's not all that's happening on this day, is it? There's a second goat. What's that goat about? Well, I said your atonement means that God must substitutionally slaughter your sin and Send it away. Look at verse 8. Leviticus 16, we read, And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. The passage says that one goat is designated for the Lord as an offering and another for this word, Azazel. Now, the exact meaning of that Hebrew word is is not quite clear. Uh, If you're holding in your hand a New New American Standard or an NIV or a KJV, you'll see that it's just translated there as scapegoat. Um, that is the dominant interpretation of the Hebrew word. It's possible that it could refer to a proper place, an actual place. Uh, it could refer to just destruction in general. Uh, it could refer to a demon, the name of a, a demon. Uh, but regardless, the, the, the main point of this passage is, is clear. This goat is meant to illustrate God sending Israel's sin away from her into the wilderness. And so we see the ritual for placing those sins on the goat in verse 20. We read, and when he has made, this is the high priest Aaron, when he has made an end for atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. 
And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat free in the wilderness. Here again, the goat stood symbolically for Israel, right? In the place of Israel, as the high priest laid his hands on its head. And you, you, you might remember from the first week, do you remember we talked about the, 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 the verb for laying the hands on the head? It was not this polite, easy resting of the hands on the head of the animal, but it was this forceful pressing down on the head of the animal as he confessed all the iniquities and transgressions and sins of Israel over it. And the imagery was, was meant to convey the weight of those sins being pressed down onto their substitute, onto this goat. Once the animal took on the identity of sinful Israel, he was sent out into the wilderness to a, to a remote area. Now listen, this, this is not in any way meant to give the impression uh, that God gives some kind of free pass to sin, right? It almost kind of sounds like, you know, all the sin is pressed down on this animal and then God sets him free and, and, and cuts him loose. But the point is that the sending away is the punishment. The sending away is the punishment. Some rabbinic commentaries say that the man who was waiting there in readiness for the, for the, the goat who was to be sent away would actually guide the, the goat to a rocky place, to a cliff, and then make sure it backed up off the cliff to its own death. But the point is that sin cannot remain in the house of God. right? Sin cannot remain in the presence of God. It must be sent away. It must be cast out. It must be cut off. So just like Adam and Eve were expelled out of the garden, so this goat, now bearing symbolically the sins of Israel, is sent out of the camp, sent out of the presence of God and out of the presence of the people. And it was yet another reminder to Israel of what they justly deserved. Right? Try and put yourself there. Right? As you see this goat being sacrificed and taken into the holy places, there's a picture of judgment there. You deserve death. But then there's another picture, as, as, as your sins are confessed and pressed down over the head of this goat and then sent out into the wilderness. It was a picture of what Israel deserved, that they, they deserve to be cast out of God's presence forever, that they deserve to be separated because of their sin and their rebellion from his presence forever. But it was also a reminder that God had made a way for their sin to be cast out without actually casting them out. In providing this spotless goat as a substitute, God made a way for their sins to be sent away from them so that they could remain, so that they could be welcomed in. And all of this was anticipation of what God would do through his son to secure eternal welcome, to secure eternal acceptance and welcome into his presence. We read earlier in our service these words from Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see there Isaiah picking up the language and the imagery of the day of atonement. The images of the father, of the father pressing down on the head of his son all of the weight for your sin. You know, we, we don't, we don't, talk about this in the imagery of the crucifixion a lot, 
But do you remember where Jesus has a crown of thorns pressed down onto his brow? Do you know why it's a crown of thorns? You ever considered this? Do you know what in, Gen- in Genesis 3, do you know what the symbol of the fall and the curse is? It's thorns, a cursed ground. And so the, the curse, the weight of the curse is pressed down onto the brow of Jesus. All of the weight for your sins. And as a result, he is taken outside the city. Jesus is ushered out of the city, out of the gates of Jerusalem, brought into the wilderness, brought to a rocky place. And he's crucified on the cross. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, he was cast out. He was sent away. The one who had been in the, the, the presence of God the Father for all eternity was rejected by his Father, was abandoned, was forsaken, was cast out, was cut off from God. And he experienced on the cross the eternal separation from God that we deserved. And why? So that you could be brought in. So that you could be welcomed. He was cut off so that that you could be grafted in, so that you could be welcomed in, right? He became sin who knew no sin so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 In Christ he sent all your sins away. And don't you see what that means now? It means not only that the the debt of your sin has been paid in full, but that those sins have been removed from you forever. Right? They have been sent away in Christ. You could think of it in these terms. Have you ever heard someone say, um, I will forgive you, but I will not forget? You heard that before? In Jesus Christ, there is both the complete forgiveness of God. Listen to me. In Jesus Christ, there is both the complete forgiveness of God and his conscious choice to forget those forgiven sins. God's wrath for your sin has been completely satisfied and your guilt has been entirely removed. Maybe some of you think about the gospel strictly as this this mechanism by which the legal debt is paid for your sins. And it's certainly not less than that, right? It's definitely that. But don't miss the heart of God in the gospel. right? He removes your sin from you. Psalm 103 puts it this way. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Micah 7.19 puts it this way. He treads our iniquities under his feet and casts our sin into the depths of the sea. Never to be seen of or heard from again. When it comes to his children, he keeps no record of wrongs. 
Now listen, I'm not saying that God somehow becomes less than all-knowing. What I'm saying is that God in Christ lovingly chooses to put away the memory of your sins so that all he sees in you is his beloved child. Some of you make your way through your week and you're just seeing your own sins and seeing your own failures and you're just waiting for God to get fed up with you and and drop the hammer. And listen, what you're forgetting is there is zero built-up frustration in God because of your sin. There is no built-up frustration in God because of your sin because at at the cross, all of your sin was sent away. At the cross, all of your sin was cast into the depths of the sea never to be seen or heard from again. That should thrill us. Therefore, therefore, let me read to you our our statement that we're working through again. You need God to substitutionally slaughter all your sin and send it away so that you can experience his Sabbath rest now and forever. Verse 29 reads this way. I read it in the beginning. I'll read it again. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work. Either native or the stranger who sojourns among you for on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. Now let me be brief on this point. The Sabbath, or the Day of Atonement, was a Sabbath. What does that mean? You know that there is this Sabbath principle built into the order of creation. Six days God works, and then on the seventh, he rests. The fourth commandment calls us to uh, honor the Sabbath. And then this Day of Atonement was what Israel referred to as the Sabbath of Sabbaths a Sabbath of solemn rest. It was a reminder to the people of Israel that the work of atonement was the work of God and God alone. It was a reminder to the people of Israel that the work of atonement was God's work. As they came to celebrate year by year the Day of Atonement, they they looked back on the redemption God had won for them. They looked back on God tearing through the Red Sea and making a way for their salvation. And we have the benefit of now in retrospect, knowing the fullness of all that the Day of Atonement pointed to, We have the benefit of looking back, not on seeing the Red Sea torn, but seeing the curtain torn. The veil that separated God, his presence from sinners, ripped in half. And if you go to Mark, you'll read that that curtain was torn from top to bottom to signify that it was God's work. It was literally as if God's hand came out of heaven and tore down that curtain. 
It was to show the full salvation and full access they now had because of his work. And so in the face of all their sins, as they came to the Day of Atonement and were called to afflict themselves, right? That word afflict is essentially to, to mourn your sin, to bring to mind all the ways in which you have sinned. It wasn't a way to earn favor with God. It wasn't a way to earn uh, you know, uh, merit before God. They were to afflict their, themselves in the sense that they were to mourn. They were to consider and reflect on their sins. And so as they came to the Day of Atonement and, and, and were called to uh, face the reality of their sins, they were also now called to rest in the work that God had done. That's what the, the word Sabbath means. It means to cease, to stop. They were to rest, to find rest. You've heard it said that our salvation is, is not by works. You've heard that? Salvation is not by works, and that's not true, actually. Our, sa- our salvation only comes by works, just not your works. It comes by the finished work of Christ and by the merits and the finished work that he accomplishes. He says to you this morning, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Right? As we look back on the Day of Atonement and all that it points to in the finished work of Christ and the cross, we're called to stop trying to earn it, to rest in Christ. To bring all of your need, all of your sin, all of your failures to God and lay them at his feet, trusting that his work is sufficient to make full atonement for your sins. And let me close with this. There is this progression through the entire chapter of this inside out movement. Right, as the holy priest goes in to cleanse the holy of holies, he then moves out to the holy place and cleanses the altar. And then finally, the sins are confessed over the goat, the sins of Israel, and then sent out of the, ca- the camp. And there's this sort of inward, outward movement. Right, cleansing that originates from the very presence of God and cleanses the holy place, the, the holy of holies, and then cleanses the most holy place. And then sin sent out of the camp. And all of that anticipates a day that is coming, a future day of atonement. You see, all of those burnt, all those offerings, right, were incomplete. They, they anticipated a day of atonement. But that day of atonement anticipated a better day of atonement, a day of atonement that we find at the cross. But that day of atonement anticipates a final day of atonement. When there will be an atonement for the world. Right When the world will be completely cleansed of all sin and all evil and will be perfectly redeemed. And that cleansing that moves out because of the, the cross of Christ to his people will then extend to the entire created order. And so everywhere you find these passages that speak about the, the, um, the final and full atonement that Christ works, you find this gaze, this looking forward to that final day. So let me, let me close with this 
passage from Hebrews chapter 10. We read this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. I think Luther was right. Right? There should be two days on our calendar, today and that final day. And because of this day, the, the day of atonement and all that it pointed to, we can live today with joy and peace and rest, and we can look forward in hope to the day when the whole world will be renewed. And so in light of the perfect salvation that God has worked for us in Christ, Listen, this is my charge to you. This is the, the word of God's charge to you this morning. In light of the, the full atonement that Christ has worked for you, draw near to him. Hold fast your confession of faith without wavering. Stir one another up in these truths, regularly encouraging one another and gathering for worship. And all the more as you see that final day drawing near. Brothers and sisters, he has made full atonement for your sins. Come to him and rest. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would indeed work in us this deep rest. That we would cease our striving. That we would cease our work to try and earn our way but that we would come to you bringing all of our sins and all of our failures and all of our brokenness and rest in the finished work that you have accomplished in your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to know the joy and the peace and blessing of rest, resting in you. I pray all these things in, in Jesus' name.